2: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, let's talk about on-the-job safety in our hospitals and healthcare facilities. Now, hospitals super crowded, tempers can get frayed in there. We're hearing lots of reports of conflict and violence in hospitals, including attacks on nurses. The BC Nurses Union highlighting this in a recent ad campaign. Have a listen to part of their TV commercial here.
3: We need you now, incoming trauma patient. With so few nurses, she'll have to wait to get the care she needs. to help me! Did that shock you? Happens almost every day, but I have to focus on my patients. Come on!
2: Okay, back in October, the provincial government promised hundreds of new security officers for hospitals. Have a listen here to Health Minister Adrian Dix. Through this new model, security personnel will be able to anticipate, de-escalate, and ultimately prevent
4: aggression and violence.
2: Okay, that was three months ago. It turns out that out of those 334 promised security officers, just a small number, a handful, four, have basically been hired to this point. That uh, reported by CTV last week. I give them a tip of the hat here. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Amon Greywall, president of the BC Nurses Union. And I'm very pleased to welcome Amon back to the show. Amon, thank you for coming on today.
5: Good morning, and thank you for having me.
2: You bet. Let's let's talk a little bit about the issue here uh, in BC hospitals right now and some of the conflict and violence that we're seeing on the jobs. We're seeing this, what, every single day practically in the system, correct?
5: Yes. I mean, we are hearing that uh, close to about roughly 26 nurses a month suffer from violent injuries at work, and uh, more than 85% of workers injured from acts of violence are female so you know this is something that we've been speaking about for decades it's actually been since 1992 when we had our first uh, violence prevention uh, campaign so it's been 30 years and we're still at the same place and uh, we need to do better
2: Okay, in the part of that TV commercial we played there, this is an ad I I think probably a lot of the listeners have seen, highlighting the concerns of nurses right now. You you see that one patient kind of acting out, getting violent, throwing a, a tray on the ground. And I remember speaking to you about this a while ago, Amin, and you mentioned that some nurses thought that that ad didn't even go far enough. They didn't show how violent it actually is in the hospital, right?
5: Yeah, you know, as you were just speaking, I was thinking the same thought, you know. Uh, Our nurses keep on saying, like, that does not, like, that trace should have hit the nurse because that's the reality that, you know, we get hit with things. Um, Just uh, in the past two weeks, we had two violent incidents at St. Paul's Hospital where a patient two separate incidences and in one of them a patient uh hit a um nurse with an improvised weapon used the curtain rod in Mm. the closet and uh, turned that into a weapon and beat a nurse and uh this uh past weekend on uh January 7th at Vernon uh, Jubilee Hospital a uh, emergency room physician and the staff in that emergency room were threatened by a patient with a knife so these wow. incidents are happening and they're very scary for our members and they are trying to protect themselves they're trying to protect their patients but they're also trying to deal with that patient that is in that situation feeling that they have to do something to either get attention or they are in that space where this is how they're perpetuating uh, their manifesting their condition.
2: Speaking of Amon Greywall, president of the B.C. Nurses Union. Okay, Amon, let's talk about these new security guards that the government promised back in October. So you heard the health minister there a talk about these security officers, 334 security officers promised at, time, at that time. Let's go back to, again to listen to what Adrian Dick said at the time about workplace violence and why we need all these new security staffers.
6: We know vo- workplace violence significantly affects their physical and mental health, requiring health care employees to take time off work or worse, leave the health care field entirely.
2: Okay, so 334 security officers promised. Boy, that's a lot. Only four? Only four have been hired so far? What's up with that?
5: Yeah, I was surprised to hear the number so low. Um, When they made the announcement, uh, you know, we welcome the fact that that is taking place. But uh, they never actually told us their timeline for it. What they did say that they would be training, hiring and training, but never gave the timeline for that. In my own head, I was thinking, okay, you have to hire them, you have to train them, it's going to be late spring. So the timeline in my head has been uh, similar, but the fact that only four have been hired is concerning. I don't know what their process is that they're using.
2: Yeah, as I recall that news conference there, um, and I, I remember Adrian Dix being asked, well, how quickly will these security guards get up and running? And he was about as clear as mud in his answer. It is basically like there's no timeline offered. Mm-hmm. Now, the government has said the training curriculum for these new security officers will not be ready until the spring, and then it sounds like most of them will not be on the job for many months after that. Are, are you concerned this is moving too slowly? Well, now hearing
5: that uh, only four have been hired, yeah, that is uh, slower than what uh, I was expecting, but, uh, you know, I am hoping that they now in the new year are going to catch up on this hiring process and get a robust response measure uh, put in place with the training of these PSOs in de-escalation techniques so that what we have been asking for is the Nurses not to be the ones that are having to physically restrain violent patients, and uh, so that they get the training for de escalation, emergency response, but also that cultural awareness training that was promised that they would receive.
2: Are, Are you concerned that this could get worse in the interim while we wait for these security guards to get on the job? Because we've seen overcrowded conditions in hospitals, the government recently put in those emergency center response in 20 of the largest hospitals. I mean, if you have a situation where hospitals are crowded, does that create, even heighten the tension even more and potentially lead to more violence on the job?
5: Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, when somebody is feeling that they're not getting the care that they need or they're advocating for a loved one, they feel that they're advocating and uh, don't, like the fact that they're having to wait and they're seeing other patients going in they need to be understanding that you know there's a triage system that the sickest will be seen first but you know when you're in that situation you're not thinking clearly anymore because you're only thinking about your loved one um wow. so yeah at that point yeah people do get upset and they do take it out on healthcare workers right. and, and our it-
2: members and if they're trying to free up beds because they've got such a demand could could you see a situation where you have patients being discharged from hospital maybe maybe earlier than they want to be discharged and maybe that leads to conflict
5: yep absolutely and uh, uh-huh. i was just speaking about this that you know with uh, these emergency operation centers that have opened up and they're looking at the earlier discharging etc we need to make sure that Plans are in place for what that care will look like out in the community as well as in individuals' homes because there's not enough nurses out in the community either. They are having to defer their patients and if they're not ready for discharge, the ports aren't in place, it's just a revolving door. They'll be right back into the emergency room again.
2: Yeah, I mean, last question for you. Who is who is responsible for this? I mean, this was an announcement made by the health minister, so it came from the very top. I mean, is it the the central ministry that is hiring these security guards? Is it individual health authorities? Like, who's in charge of this?
5: Well, I believe that, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would. I mean, the ultimate uh, responsible is the Ministry of Health, yeah. uh, but uh, health authorities, I believe, would be hiring and. Uh, doing their own uh, vetting of the hiring process and uh, the training. So that would be a good question for Minister Dix.
2: All right. Thank you for coming on today. We're following it closely.
5: Thank you for having me. Take care.
2: All right. We're talking about on-the-job violence in our health care system. The government's promised 334 security officers for Vancouver hospitals, and also other hospitals in B.C., that promise came down in October. Just four have been hired so far. If you are a nurse or someone in your family is a nurse or you know someone who's a nurse who's experienced this, let me know, please. If you phone me right now, you're going to get through. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Um,
7: I love listening to your show. So I got a story, like my wife told me, she's a uh, clerical nurse in an emergency department in Vancouver, Ireland. Okay. She was telling me a story about uh, a guy that came in, and uh, he was in a state, right, and he was having some mental issues. So they, they admitted him, they put him into the, into the room, and um, he grabbed a pair of scissors and jabbed it into his eye. Oh, so um uh, as they were restraining him and trying to get a hold of the situation, right like 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 excuse me, like my wife was telling me the story, and it just kind of still makes me cringe, right, so as they were restraining him with the security guards, they were on the ground, and he kept banging his head on the ground and jabbing the scissors further into his eyes, oh my right, God. it's like, uh, so it's just like you know she came home like it's just you know she's all stressed out, and like How do you absorb something like that, right? Then you come home from after a twelve-hour shift, and you want to go to sleep, but the images of just somebody trying to do that, right? So I think you know, even having private security in the hospital is not good enough. Like I, like I don't even know what it would take to fix something like that, right? Like it's just.
2: Do you think that's? Thank you for sharing this story. Like, do you think, as your wife said, it seems to be getting worse recently? It. Over the past three or four months, it's definitely gotten worse because
7: yeah. every day there's a, there's a different story. Like, the news probably doesn't hear everything. It's uh, the actual people that actually work there that see on a daily basis what goes on, right? And every day there's a new story, and it's just amazing. Like She's on a stress leave, but she's going to end up quitting because she can't do that anymore, right? Uh, like, she's not a nurse. She's just a clerical nurse, right? So it's just, you know, crazy. So babe, that's thank- my story.
2: Steve, thank you for calling in and sharing that. And this is one of the reasons why the government promised those security guards was they're worried about this precise situation you just described. People get stressed out, they're fed up, they quit their jobs. We've got a shortage of nurses in British Columbia. The government pleading for a lot of them to come back to work, go back on the job. But, you know, you've got to protect people on the job. Okay, if only we could hear the train a coming in Stanley Park. Let's talk about the Stanley Park train now. What a shame that this popular attraction has been shut down for so long, including over the recent holiday season. The Bright Nights Christmas train in the park, of course, canceled. Donations to the Firefighters Burn Fund down 50% as a result. The Stanley Park train crucial to their annual fundraising efforts. I, this is an embarrassment for our city. Popular attraction like that, it's been in the, in the park for decades. This park has been, this train has been shut down for so long. Why? Why? Is it because of these technical challenges of running a vintage train like the board claims? Come on. This is not rocket science here. There are lots of these trains operating all around North America without any problems. Let's discuss it now with my guest, John Cooper, former Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, John, thanks for coming on today. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, okay. Let's talk about this train right now. Why do you think it's been shut down for so long? What's the problem?
6: Well, it seems as if there hasn't been um, uh, the will to, uh, you know, spend spend time on the ongoing maintenance of the train. You know, this train was built in the 60s. Uh, I remember as a kid walking the construction site with my dad in about the 1963, and uh, it was a a big hurricane in Vancouver. Hurricane Perita blew down all the trees, and that gave the parkway that ability to put that train in and not disturb uh, the park because there'd be a big blowdown. The fact is, this is a much-loved train. It was a train prior to that, even in the 50s, a smaller-age train that ran in Stanley Park. So this train idea has been with us since the the 1950s, extremely popular with families and and children. I'm really happy to hear that the new ABC uh, majority on the board is talking about bringing the fun back to Vancouver. Well, that's the perfect way to bring the fun back. Just let's get that train going.
2: Yeah, when you listen to the park board, I mean, they've got lots of excuses for 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 why this has been shut down for so long, that this is some sort of a a technical vintage train that some of the parts are hard to source. I mean, are you are you buying that when you see so many of these other similar trains operating around North America successfully without any problems?
6: Well, there's hundreds of them. there's four hundred of them yeah. around North America that are that are running and uh, you know a, a simple internet search will tell you that uh, this company is in business. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons the parkport has stated is they're looking at electrifying the train and they want to work with UBC. Well, the fact is the company already has an electrification option for this train so there's a lot of information that's come out and when you do a fairly simple search on Google. Um, there's some holes in the story, and I think Jordan Armstrong on Global um, did a good job in pointing some of that out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say that he's done a terrific job, and I encourage the listeners to check out his reports at globalnews.ca. Uh, one of the people that he talked to, John, was a guy named Rob Galley. Now, he's the operator of Galley Farms near Saanich in Victoria, and they have a very, very similar amusement train at this farm i've been there with my my own family when my kids were small it's been operating there a long time they don't have any problems keeping this train up and running it's practically the same train as the one that runs in stanley park let's have a listen to rob Galley here talking to global news about it have a listen it's constant inspections you got to inspect the equipment all the time you got to look for any kind of corrosion Do you have a budget of millions of dollars like the vancouver park board does Absolutely not. Um, we do a lot ourselves. Yeah, I mean, there's like five five guys over there operating this farm, and they're able to keep this train up and running without any problems. What do you think of that? I mean, if you look well, around. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, it's just common sense. I mean, I re- remember the train tracks through Carrisdale for years. There was no tr- freight on there, but CN still ran a locomotive up and down those tracks to make sure that to keep it in running order. There's been a lot of talk about the charity events, but also being lost, is the summer season for this train, which is a much, much loved attraction. You have to run these trains. And uh, I remember when I was on the board and the old station burned down, and I really had to push like heck to uh, get them to rebuild that station. And I'm very proud that they, they did build the station. For almost three years, that previous vision board uh, had a tent there during bright nights. So this is ongoing. I think it's uh, one of those things that's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. It's you know It's, it's deep in the park, but I can tell you, People have been calling me and and saying, you know, we love this thing and and uh, let's get it going. And I'm I'm just concerned that when the consultant report comes back, that there may be you know some costs there that are going to be hard for the park board to bear. But you know, it's much like the conservatory in the, in 2009 where there was a new rookie board, and they got a big story that you know, well, it couldn't be fixed. There were so many things wrong, and uh, they bought into it, and it took the public to really speak out. So. I hope the public really lets the park board commissioners know how much they appreciate this attraction in Stanley Park and how vital it is to uh, to fun and, and and families and, and kids having a great experience in the park.
2: Yeah. I think this is an embarrassment for our city that this this attraction has been shut down for so long. And I'm not buying the park board's excuses on it either. I mean, like you said, there are hundreds of similar trains operating successfully around North America. And if you take a look at the technical report that came out on the problems with the train, John, a lot of it had nothing to do with sort of technical elements of the of a vintage train and hard-to-source parts, like the board has been saying. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is just downright neglect. Because when you take a look at this report, some of the problems with the Stanley Park train, corrosion, damage to the tracks and the rail cars, overgrown vegetation, decaying infrastructure. That has nothing to do with running a vintage train and having trouble getting the parts that is just downright neglect and incompetence what are your yeah, thoughts you have
6: got you've, you've got to run these trains and, and certainly the park board has the capability to trim the bush i mean that's just that's just absolutely outrageous to be quite honest and uh, you know some of those you know i remember when it was first new everything was miniature in there there was a there was a ranger lookout i mean uh, there was actually there was actually buffalo there was, you know, there was there was a bunch of exhibits uh, attached to that. There was also the children's uh, petting zoo. So that whole section has kind of been allowed to uh, to decay. And the other thing is even the fence around it. I mean, I think it's the same fence from the '60s. It really needs some serious attention. And I and I hope this new park board, the ABC group, sends a strong message to the park board management that uh, this is not acceptable.
2: Yeah, I, agree. I I believe it is unacceptable and it's inexcusable, too, that this has been allowed to happen. Let's listen to one of these newly elected Park Board commissioners here, John. This is Laura Christensen. She's with the ABC slate of candidates, as you mentioned. And here she is saying that they're committed to get this train rolling again. Let's have a listen.
8: We are all very committed to the Stanley Park train. We all see it as a really important part of the city um, and a beloved attraction,
2: Okay. We saw, she was also asked, "Well, how quickly can this train get back up and running again?" Here's what she had to say:
8: "We are hopeful to get it up and running as soon as possible. Uh, Easter would be great, um, but we don't know at this time, and we're waiting to hear back from that report."
2: Oh, okay. Well, if they could get the train rolling again by Easter, I think that would be that would be great. I'm not sure that's possible. John, your thoughts?
6: Well, I think it needs a concerted effort, and the problem with these reports is oftentimes they take a long time. So. Um, you know some of it you don't really need a report. you could get going on the work, I think immediately, and you know this was a project of long serving commissioner George Wayneborn, who actually when the train opened, he was there to drive the last spike. They had quite a ceremony and it was a big thing in vancouver and um you know let's uh, let's drive a new spike let's get this thing going and uh Uh, Instead of waiting, I think, for consultants all the time, we just need an action plan, and let's get moving. Uh, I'm sure that the staff there know what needs to be done. They need some funding in place to get it done, and let's see it happen.
2: Do you think that, or do you have any suspicion or fear that the reason that this train has been neglected and allowed to deteriorate like this is because it is a a gas-powered train, that if it was an electric train or it was run by solar power or something like that, that this park board would be all in favor of keeping it going. But in the name of climate change, they just deliberately neglect it. I mean, is there any evidence of that, or do you suspect that's the case?
6: Well, I think the previous Green Cope Alliance on the park board was leaning that way, perhaps. But I, I don't have any real evidence of that, just the, you know the thinking that it wasn't a priority. And the reality is a small engine like that, the, the amount of greenhouse gas it would emit is so minor that uh, it's not even worth considering it. But you can consider the fact that there was lots of money to put a temporary bike lane in. There's lots of money to take a temporary bike lane out. You know, uh, it comes down to priorities. And uh, I'm just happy to see Commissioner Christensen say that this will be a priority. And wow. we'll just have to watch that as it moves forward. And I think that if listeners let commissioners know, they can write Commissioners at vancouver.ca, two S's, two M's, let the park board know that uh, they care about this train. They want to get their kids back on the train and have some memories. And uh, oh. I certainly hope I get to ride the train again.
2: All right. Talking about the Stanley Park bike train with my, uh, bike train, Stanley Park train with my guest, John Cooper. Lots of phone calls. Carmen and Langley. Hi, Carmen. Go ahead.
3: Hi there. Yeah, um, I grew up with a train since, I don't know, two, age two, and I'm 59 now, and um, it's got so many memories of everything my whole life, right? And I don't understand. Um, maybe it's union rules, but I don't understand how come um, this has happened, and I don't understand how come uh, the parks board can't just put a reach out for volunteers i don't know bear creek park used to do it um i certainly would get in my car and register um different weekends to come down and clean up the foliage and do some garden work like we do at laps out here and some of the other organizations um there's so many fraternal organizations like Forcers Financial and Rotary and Masons and all those guys out there that have the money to help and would love to come in and help and would love to come out and, and clean up and would love to sign up. So um, this could all be done within a couple of weeks if it wasn't for all of the paperwork.
2: Okay, well, I think those are some great suggestions, Carmen. Thank you for that. And I know that the Park Board has received offers of volunteer help. John, do you have any knowledge in that? Um, not not
6: really. I know that the, the, the fact is the park board has looked after and been able to run this for 60 years. Um, I don't yeah. think the model necessarily has to be changed. I mean, they have got 60 years of success and all of a sudden uh, it can't be done. I think it can be done and uh, we don't need excuses. Uh, one of the things I did as a commissioner is move forward a, a park foundation, which I think is moving forward uh, now. And hopefully there'll be a situation where people can make tax deductible. Donations and, and that may help on some of these special projects. But I mean, the, the reality is the park board has the capacity, it just needs the will, and hopefully, right. this new board will provide that will.
2: Dev in Victoria. Hi, Dev, go ahead.
0: A lot of great memories uh, with that train and also from people that were visiting. You know, we take them there. But the problem is uh, this poor train, if it had a pronoun, maybe then they would give it a priority. Um, you know, the only thing that the previous board cared about, as uh, you nailed it, Mike, was bike lanes and being politically correct in climate change. So, if we make this a climate change project, maybe they'll support the train.
2: Well, that's the thing. Like, I think if they were to convert it into like a solar powered train, you'd probably see them throw millions of dollars at it. Trevor in Vancouver, hi, Trevor, go ahead.
0: Hey, uh, hey, good, thank you. You know, I find this pretty funny in this conversation. Because John sat on council when all this foliage was growing and all this disrepair happened. And now he, that the whole tint of the conversation is ABC's not doing anything. If he wanted to do something, he should have done something back then instead of coming out of the woodwork after he had, got kicked out of the uh, mayor race and uh, trying to kick up Steve, uh, kick up dust now. This is all under his watch. So
7: hey, John, wh- John what are you...
2: Okay, let's see well, what he I'll, says about I'll, that. I'll go ahead.
6: I'll certainly stand by my record. Uh, I was responsible for the rebuild of the train station. You can go down there and you can see a plaque with my name on it. Uh, this never came to the board for additional funding by staff in uh, the previous board, but clearly the Cope Green Alliance uh, let staff know what their priorities were. I was one of two in opposition, and I think we did a good job in opposition. So it's easy to, uh, you know, bark from the uh, from the stands, but... The reality is, uh, I think my record on park board stands for for itself after 11 years.
2: Rick in Vancouver. Hi, Rick. Go ahead.
6: Many years ago, the parks board staff brought to the board um, the option of buying a complete set of rolling stock motor or engine and cars for that train with the same gauge track. I'm sure that they passed it at that time. I'm just wondering, to know, if somebody could find out about that. But the second thing I'd like to say is John, I was involved in community work when you started and the problem with the parks board is they listen to the staff too much. Everything the staff said is gospel and all that parks board has done is got bigger and bigger in management. Nothing else huh. and who's 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 been respond, who's suffered it? The public. Look at the parks. Look at this uh, look at the community centers. Right? They let them go because maintenance was right. not a priority.
2: Rick, thank you for the call. we got 30 seconds here. John, go ahead.
6: Yeah, there's been a lot of changes. One of the big ones was that Penny Bell, the city manager moved uh, a lot of the maintenance to a, a group called REFM up at city hall and that's added additional bureaucracy and, and park board is now a client rather than the deliverer of service. So, there's a lot more to this that meets the eye, but I, I hope that this new board can certainly move forward on getting this train okay. going
2: and let's bring the fun back to Vancouver. John, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much. A pleasure. All right, here we go now with the great gas stove debate. Now, critics say gas stoves are bad for your health, and bad for the environment. Should they be banned? This is a red-hot issue right now, especially after a new report warning of the health risks from gas-burning stoves in your home. We've got an awesome panel standing by on this, both sides of it for you. First, have a listen to this report from NBC News.
3: A recent study by the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health finding 12.7% of current childhood asthma in the U.S. may be linked to gas stove use. The safety of in-home gas stoves is sparking a political battle in Washington. The president does not support uh, banning gas stoves. On Monday, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission chair, Richard Trumka Jr., saying to Bloomberg, quote, products that can't be made safe can be banned when asked about gas stove safety. The statement sparked swift backlash from Republicans, tweeting, get your hands off our gas stoves. Democrats are coming for your kitchen appliances and calling the suggestion a weaponization of the federal bureaucracy. The commission since clarifying tweeting CPSC isn't coming for anyone's gas stoves. Regulations apply to new products.
2: Okay, so this one burning hot and bright in the United States. There's a movement in Canada to ban gas stoves as well. All right, let's discuss it now. Both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me thanks for coming on cody Battershill is the founder of canada action it's an oil and gas advocacy organization cody thank you for coming on thank you mike thank you peter okay gentlemen thank you for both of you for being here peter let me go to you first gas stoves should they be banned uh i definitely think we should stop
0: putting gas stoves in new homes um there's a wealth of evidence now that shows that they're linked to childhood asthma Uh, as many as one in eight cases of childhood asthma is directly linked to gas stoves. And, you know, when we find out that something is, um, you know, giving kids respiratory illnesses, uh, Health Canada should be taking action against this. And I don't think this needs to be the political football that Republicans in the United States are trying to make it. This is a really common sense measure in the same way that, um, you know, we, we ban all sorts of things that are unhealthy to have in the home. And I think you know, 30 years down the line, we'll probably look back at a bit like having heating oil in the home. It's, you know, wow, we were burning fossil fuels in our kitchens. Um, I, th- I think that uh, the time of the gas stove is on the way out, but nobody's coming to ban or rip the gas stove out of your kitchen. Um, that's that's just not under consideration right now.
2: Okay. Cody Battershill, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I think we have to look at what have an impact on our health and society and when we look globally there's still 2.4 billion people who are cooking with straw and dirt and animal dung and unsafe or unclean fuels and maybe we want to be thinking about helping them first and foremost get electricity or access to natural gas so that they can actually have healthier and longer lives i think that's a key priority but You know, the problem with being anti-natural gas, which, you know, a lot of, you know, Peter and a lot of these environmental groups are, is what's the alternative? A lot of these environmental groups are against Site C. They're against nuclear power. They're against low emission natural gas. They're against coal. And yet, all over North America, there's still a ton of opposition at a municipal level to new wind. And the sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. So what's the bridge? And if we're going to ban gas stoves in people's homes, are we going to tell people what to feed their children? How to cook are we going to ban cars that don't have seatbelts that automatically connect are we going to ban cigarettes and alcohol are we going to ban people from doing extreme sports and i mean where does it end so i think there's a balance plus this yeah. this study uh there's a, a clear organizational bias the rocky mountain institute you know has a stated purpose of transitioning our energy sources to a different model and they have a right to the views but the paper's clearly biased with the american lung association saying asthma can be caused by at least seven variables so more study yeah. is needed but we have to let people have their choice in how they raise their families and uh, feed their children and what people want to cook with
2: okay. peter what do you say to that
0: um well there was a lot there so first i guess the alternative is readily available in british columbia at least where this know, interview is taking place we have the very re- clean, renewable electricity, you know, it's it's from dams that were built a uh, generation and a half ago, um, and you can have just as good of cooking experience on an induction stove. They use magnets to heat up your pots, and a lot of kitchens, like commercial kitchens, are actually switching over um, because they don't heat up the rest of your house, and they're actually, uh, you know, far healthier for anybody who's living inside the house because the, the gases that we found uh, is actually escaping of these stoves, even when they're off. And so they are mm. polluting um, your home, whether you're cooking on them actively or not. Um, hey,
2: hey, Peter, you're, a, you're you're a climate... Let me just ask you real quick. You're a climate change campaigner there at the Wilderness Committee. Do, do gas stoves produce greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the gas that is burning in your gas stove is methane gas
0: which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas that traps 86 86 times more heat than carbon dioxide over its lifetime in the atmosphere. And so this gas is seeping out of every gas stove in the country right now. And so, yeah, uh, you know, we absolutely this is low hanging fruit to stop installing um, polluting products in our homes so that, uh, you know, we can prevent the health risks associated with climate change and we can prevent the health risks associated with burning fossil fuels in your kitchen.
2: Cody Battersill, what do you say to that?
1: I mean, the, the, the paper is also based on outdated data from the 80s and 90s, and they avoided relevant and strong studies that disproved the author's thesis. There was a study done in 100 countries with 2 million kids. It was one of the largest collaborative research projects ever, and it found no evidence of an association between childhood asthma, symptoms of diagnosis, and cooking with gas. So this, to me, seems like a part of the plot against fossil fuels, against natural gas. And you'll notice that Peter did not talk about sightseeing opposition by Greenpeace and all these green groups to nuclear power. They just want to build wind and solar. And I'm pro-wind and solar. When we have battery storage, when we can get through the land requirements, and when we can build enough of everything to meet growing demand. But imagine if everyone had an electric vehicle right now and if everyone had an electric stove, we're going to massively increase the demand on the grid. We don't want blackouts. If we want affordable energy, we also need to think about some of these other uh, consequences. And again, two and a half billion people almost in the world don't even have have electricity for cooking or gas. They're using other fuels. How about a global campaign to help those people lift themselves out of poverty to enjoy our high quality of life? I think that's where these environmental groups should really start.
0: Um, There are plenty of people who are working on bringing electricity and uh, effective cooking to households all around the world. Um, Sorry, my phone cut out for a moment. Can you still hear me, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. So there there are people working. Obviously, you know, we need to be uh, helping folks live healthier with what they're cooking all over the world. But we also need to do that in Canada. This is not an either-or thing. And, you know, we have, you know, pretty clean, carbon-free electricity here in British Columbia, and uh, the intermittency issues with wind and solar don't come until you have, like, over half of your grid actually on these. So we're a long way away from ever worrying about how much electricity we would need in British Columbia to, uh, to power okay. induction stoves.
2: All right, it's our gas stove debate. Cody Battershill, Canada Action. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Lots of calls on the open line. Moser in Langley. Hi, go ahead.
4: Hey, well, I would just like to let you guys know that I just bought a beautiful commercial KitchenAid six-burner gas stove. Very efficient, really worth the money. Two, I would like to know how they say it causes asthma. I have asthma, and I don't have an issue with it because there's so many safety features of these new updated gas stoves for cooking. It's, it's totally unbelievable. But the question I have here for your caller is everyone's about, you know, we got to do good for the economy. we got to do good for the green people, okay? The question yeah. is this. Why is our government, Trudeau and all these other people, buying houses on lakes and rivers and oceans if we're having such a big global issue about worrying about water? And how about our electrical cars that give off more emittance from the gas coming out of them? And we're worrying about stoves that have been around for hundreds of years. And if we eliminate them all, the strain that we're going to put on our Dams like like the U.S. The U.S. is encouraging to use gas, and Canada, okay. we're
2: not. Okay. Thank you for the call. Well, Peter, you covered a lot of ground there in our call, but let me focus on the, the strains on the electrical grid. You know, once we start going to electric vehicles, if we get rid of gas powered stoves, where's all this electricity going to come from?
0: So uh, there are upgrades we could make to the Revelstoke Dam, and in, in particular, that would uh, create lots of new electricity. Um, There are wind and solar opportunities. Offshore wind in British Columbia is a massive opportunity. Everyone knows the the huge windstorms we get here, especially during the winter. And then for that base load power that we're talking about, that sort of uh, consistent power, you know, geothermal. um, We are one of the only countries on the Pacific Rim that does not exploit our geothermal resources, the heat that is trapped under the earth. Um, You know, we got 30,000 holes in the ground in the northeast of this province. Uh, from all of the fracking for gas, we should start using those to produce clean electricity um, with the heat that is buried underground. And so there are lots and lots of opportunities to produce the energy we need here in British Columbia that do
2: not involve polluting
0: our climate. Cody, what
2: about those alternatives? Your thoughts?
1: I mean, we're already advancing wind, solar, hydro. We're a leader in low emission electricity uh, in the world and we're a leader in geothermal. But we need to plan for a massive increase in electricity demand, and it must come from reliable sources. Previously, Peter said he wants us to go wind and solar, but said we don't have the technology available yet for storing it, and we don't need to worry about it until we're at least 50% wind and solar in the grid. Well, the wind does not always blow, the sun does not always shine, and families cannot afford unreliable, unaffordable energy in the gap between those two technologies coming together Uh, In the meantime, so we got to be pragmatic, balanced and sensible about this. Let people choose the stove that's best for them, just like we let people choose the food that's best for them, the sports that are best for them, uh, the activities that are best for them in a given day within their homes and their families and be pragmatic. This is just simply anti-natural gas, anti-fossil fuel rhetoric. By the way, natural gas fertilizers, based fertilizers are feeding billions of people. Are these groups, is Peter against natural gas-based fertilizer, too? Uh,
2: Peter, do you want to answer that?
0: I mean, fertilizers are a key part of our food system at the moment. Uh, They are also a huge contributor of greenhouse gases. So we should be doing whatever we can uh, to grow in ways that minimize the use of fertilizer that obviously we need. Um, But, you know, in terms of letting people choose, uh, we don't let people build unsafe homes. We have building codes. We have all sorts of regulations in this country that protect you and your family without you even knowing about them. Um, so no, we shouldn't let people continue to put polluting appliances in their home when we know that
2: it gives children asthma. Okay, let's go to Jackie on the line in Richmond. Hi, Jackie, go ahead.
8: Hi there. Um, yeah, I, I don't agree with that either. I think that asthma, the study is, is biased. I think that there has been other studies that probably would show that that actually is not related to asthma because i know a number of people that have asthma and they don't even have gas in their house um and actually for the other side of it what about gas fireplaces is that going to be banned as well as a heat source um my okay. father during the um 70s and 80s switched all his vehicles over to propane because the government gave grants and said this is a safer way of you know of driving and 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 that went out the window so i mean it's always just what is what is the new thing right but let's do some studies on it and actually get some facts before we go ahead and and roll everything out just based on one study that i'm sure is really just not completely accurate in the fact that it's linked right to asthma i don't thank, agree thank with you
2: that. thank you jackie for the call well peter what about Natural gas burning fireplaces or, or natural gas furnaces. Do you believe those should be phased out too?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is any reason for us to be building fo- or building new homes with fossil fuels in them and burning fossil fuels in our home. Um, with regards to the study, this is not one one-off study. This is you know dozens of studies over decades that have shown that there are health risks. This is something that Health Canada acknowledges. It's something the United States federal government acknowledges. Um, this is science here and and once we understand that you know nitrogen dioxides and benzene and no car- known carcinogen is seeping out of the appliances in your kitchen, we should stop putting those appliances in your kitchen. There are better
2: ways to do this okay um, third and, and no one 's going to miss them okay, Cody, you got thirty seconds here you get the last word. go ahead.
1: Um, Peter's proposing that we essentially set ourselves back hundreds of years in life expectancy, convenience, and personal choice and freedom by banning everything and anything made out of fossil fuels and their usage in our modern lives. Literally, we will take every single thing out of We won't have homes because they're made from fossil fuel, shingles, carpets, all, you name it, and it there's many communities them the in problem. Canada that do not have Uh, that currently rely on diesel for their electricity. What are we going to do for those remote communities? This is a biased talking point against clean Canadian oil and natural gas, and I don't think the science
0: backs it up.